My name is Lauren, and if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, um, it's awesome to see you and have you with us this afternoon. Um, and just reiterating what Alex said before, if you're new, please come and touch base with us before you head home, um, because community is such a beautiful part of who we are and who we're becoming, um, and it's awesome to have you be part of that. If you have your Bible with you, or if you have your phone with you, please get that out. Um, as Jim said, it's something Jesus did, so we can do it too. Um, and go find Mark chapter 8. It's in the second half of the Bible, about two-thirds of the way through. And I will give you a couple of seconds to do that, and then we'll get started. So I, um, I have the privilege of having our next Becoming Sunday, which is like kind of wild because I was like, oh, that's something for like the big pastors to do. Um, so I was a little bit nervous, but then Alex told me about the topic and I was like, oh, wow, that makes me more nervous, but less nervous all at the same time because we actually get to talk about the cost of discipleship tonight. Yeah, you can whatever for that. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Anyway, changing tracks completely. I don't know about you guys. Um, we have a variety of ages and life stages and whatnot in this room, but I feel like the older that I have gotten, the less invitations I receive for parties. And to be perfectly honest with you, I'm actually kind of glad about that because on one hand, pragmatically, like I'm a very sentimental person and so I keep them all and like, what do you do with invitations from a 18th birthday party like 10 years ago? I don't know, but I find something to do with them. So on that hand, I'm really glad I don't get invitations. But on the other hand, I'm actually an introvert who I think for some weird reason is becoming an extrovert. And so it's not that I don't want to go to parties or celebrations. It's not that I don't think the individual or the couple or the baby or the dog or the house or the plant or whatever it is that we're celebrating, it's not that I don't think that's worth celebrating. It's more just I know what follows the invitation. You know, you get an invitation, you check your calendar, you say RSVP yes or RSVP no, you go to the party, maybe you bring a gift if you're feeling like fancy or generous. Um, you get to the party, you do party things, woo, and then you go home and life goes back to normal. Yeah, it's familiar. And I think I've become so familiar with the pattern of what follows this invitation that I've actually missed the significance of the invitation itself. Yeah, that someone has sat down and is having this beautiful celebration and has specifically thought, hey, whatever reason, I don't know, but I want Lauren to be there. I've missed that because I've become so familiar of just going through the motion of the event. And I wonder if for many of us in this room tonight, maybe for all of us in different ways, that's also how we've come to think about discipleship, to think about our life of following after Christ. What is discipleship, you ask? Well, I would say it'll be on the screen, is to follow after and to become like someone. And if we're thinking about it in a Christian lens, which we are tonight, I hope that's not a surprise to anybody, but this is a Christian church, we believe in Jesus. So Christian discipleship is then to follow after and to become like Jesus. Yeah? Great, you're with me. Discipleship is a word that we use a lot here at New Life. If you've done pathways, we go into depth in what discipleship is and what it looks like a lot. We are deeply passionate about discipleship, and we will not apologize for that. But let me be clear on something else. This invitation that we have to know Jesus and to become his disciples isn't a process that then lets us in the door to just an upper middle class life where maybe we don't swear, we give to some charities, we go to church when we can, we read the Bible if we feel like it. And on the other end of that spectrum, it's not even an invitation into being up to date with our becoming readings. Though that is awesome if you are, 
But it's not just to check the box. It's not to get a theology degree or to run a ministry or to be a small group leader or in a small group. This invitation to know Jesus and become like him includes some of those things. Yes, they're good things. But to be a disciple is something so much richer and deeper and infinitely more costly. But at the same time, it's infinitely more beautiful. And so what a beautiful thing it is that you are here tonight, that we are here together this afternoon. And I want to say thank you, whether you are a long-term Christian who has been to church every Sunday for your entire life, whether you are just checking out church, maybe you've done Alpha recently and you're just like putting your feelers out of what this whole following Jesus thing looks like. And maybe for some of you, you're not actually sure why you're here. Maybe someone invited you or dragged you along or you're here to please mom or dad. Thank you for being here. You know, I think the thing is like none of us actually have to. And so you've chosen to be here for whatever reason that is. And I want to honor that and say thank you because I believe that God does everything on purpose, with purpose, and that includes you being in this room today. And so becoming Sunday, the cost of discipleship and what it means to be um, following after and becoming like Christ. And I think one of the the reasons for these Becoming Sundays is actually to defamiliarize us with stuff that is too important to miss. They're our regular check-in four times a year to make sure that as a family, we're not just checking boxes, we're not just showing up Sunday after Sunday, going through the motions, doing the Christian thing, but actually so that we stop, we think, and we remember the significance and the intentionality required for us to be a family who is becoming more people more like Jesus. Because that stuff doesn't happen by accident. It's our checkpoint, our stopgap to not become so familiar with this process of what it means to follow Jesus that we miss the significant significance of the invitation itself. And so there are four main things that I want you to hear tonight. The first one is something essential to keep in mind across the whole thing, like kind of like a thread that will tie us all the way through. And then the following three things are questions. And so if you get lost, if you zone out, if you check out, if you don't really care what I'm saying, take note of these things now and come back to them. You'll be able to attach this scripture to it as well. They will be on the screen. Firstly, these are the words of Jesus that we're going to be reading together and exploring tonight. Now, my three questions for you guys. Firstly, are you clear on who Jesus is? Second, are you clear on what kind of discipleship he has called or invited you into? And then number three, are you clear on your response to his invitation? And you'll have time. We'll we'll look at those again. So don't fret if you haven't got them down now. But let's go back to that Mark 8 passage and we'll read it together. It'll also be on the screen. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Weird. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
And then he turned and he called the crowd along with his disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Friends, I'd love it if you'd join me as we pray. Come, Holy Spirit. We thank you that these are living words from the living God. And we pray that they would capture and arrest our hearts this afternoon. That we wouldn't walk out of this building the same way that we walked in. That we wouldn't have closed ears to what your Spirit is saying to us. To come and open our eyes, soften our hearts, prepare our hands and our feet to go out and live as people who are being and becoming more like your son, Jesus. That your kingdom would come and your will would be done here in Brisbane as it is in heaven, Father. In us and through us, for your name's sake. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. One of my heroes of the faith is a a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Has anyone heard of him? A few nods. Great. He was a guy who grew up between the two world wars. He was born in like 1906, I think. So if he was still alive, he'd be like super old. Um, Anyway, he became a pastor and he became a seminary lecturer by the age of 24, which is quite young, I think, um, and whose conviction about the reality of Jesus and the phrase that he coined, which was the cost of discipleship, which we're looking at tonight, this led him to return to Germany from this comfy teaching position that he had in London, and later um, another trip he was in in America, to take up this leading role in the confessing church's movement to live out and to teach the Christian faith despite the opposition and persecution of the Nazi party. And in a letter to the guy who he was staying with in America as he was leaving and heading back home, he gave him these reasons for returning to Germany. He said, sitting here in the garden, I've had time to think and pray about my situation and that of my nation and to have God's will for me clarified. I made a mistake in coming to America. This is a godly dude, so this is cool. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. My brothers in the Confessing Synod wanted me to go, and they may have been right in urging me to do so, but I was wrong in going. Such a decision each man must make for himself. Christians in Germany will face a terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and therefore destroying our civilization. He says, I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make the choice in security. That's the key thing out of all of that. I cannot make this choice in security. And so Bonhoeffer returned to Germany in 1939 and he never regretted that decision, though he didn't live that much longer afterwards. Because what he recognized was ultimately the foundational and the core conviction of his invitation to know Jesus. Famously, he summarized it like this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And to fill that phrase out a little more for us, I'd say when Christ calls a man or a woman or a child or a teen, 
someone who is same-sex attracted, someone who's addicted to pornography or alcohol, someone who's struggling in the business world or has lost a lot of money and is in debt. When Christ calls that person, whoever they are, he invites them to take stock of their life, to think about the thing that is most dear or most true to them, and then to lay that down, to be willing to just let it all go for the sake of knowing Jesus and being found in him. And you know what? That's exactly what Bonhoeffer did. He responded to this invitation and he gave his life in a really similar way actually to the Apostle Paul when he says in Philippians that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. Bonhoeffer counted the cost and he responded to this invitation to know Christ and to make him known. And I want to share a couple of quotes that are a little longer than I'd like, but I think they'll set us up for the rest of our time together. Now, Bonhoeffer is also known for this iconic phrase, cheap grace, and with that, um, a phrase called costly grace. And I think this will give us like this brushstroke understanding so that we can spend our time together for the rest of the night wisely. So that'll be on the screen as well if you can read it. Cheap grace, and with it, I'd say cheap discipleship, has served as an inoculation, or more accurately, a vaccination. It's good timing. We have gotten just enough of Jesus to prevent us from catching the real thing. And as a result, we begin to feel secure even in the midst of godless living. Though we become aware of our disobedience, this cheap grace provides us with a deceptive sense of strength. After all, we're told our salvation has already been accomplished by the grace of God, which it has, yes, but it's not what he's getting at. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's communion without confession. It's baptism without church discipline. It's preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. In addition, cheap grace is characterized by belief without obedience, hearing without doing, and intellectual assent without a life commitment. On the other hand, a costly grace, and with it, I would say a costly discipleship, is actually the grace and the substance of Christian discipleship. It's costly because it calls us to follow It's costly because it costs us our very lives. It's costly because it condemns sin. But it's grace because when we are called to follow, the call to follow is to follow Jesus. It's grace because although it costs us our life, it is also the source and the only true, complete life. Later in his book, he says, the church and individuals will only recover the joy of discipleship when its cost is fully paid. And so tonight, on our Becoming Sunday, we're going to come back to this invitation to true discipleship, costly discipleship, so that we can hear it afresh and we can decide whether or not we're going to walk out in light of its significance. We're putting in this stopgap, so to speak, so that we don't become so familiar with the pattern of cheap discipleship that we miss the significance of our invitation into a discipleship that is costly. This invitation to know Jesus is to know that when Christ calls you, he invites you to come and die. And so let's come back to our passage. Let me tell you exactly how we're going to walk through this tonight. Firstly, I want to remind you that these are the words of Jesus. Now, why do I say this? Why have I said this twice now? Because this is important. Yes, we're looking through the lens of Bonhoeffer and some of his story. And yes, we're looking through my lens because I'm the one who's presenting this tonight. But ultimately, these words that we're reading are the words of Jesus the Messiah. 
Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, God who became man, who put on flesh and became like us. The historical Jesus of Nazareth who lived and died and was resurrected and ascended and who now sits victoriously at the right hand of the Father. These are his words. And so if you don't want to listen to me, that's fine. If you don't even like Bonhoeffer, that's fine. But be really clear that if you choose not to take this passage seriously, it's not me that's going to be offended. These are the words of Jesus. And so we need to take them seriously or at least consider the weight and the seriousness of them. The next three things are my questions. So what we're going to do is um, the passage will be up on the screen again, and I'm just going to highlight a few key things um, and, yeah, just some observations about this passage that you can go back to in your own time when you're having to flick through Mark 8, even though we've already passed that in Becoming, um, that you can go back to and be like, oh, I remember some person talked about this thing and just give you a conversation starter. Then I'm going to reframe my questions. And then what I'm going to do is just open a conversation. We don't have time for real in-depth stuff tonight, but just open a conversation about what this stuff might look like as we begin to walk it out. Yeah, it's not going to be a long thing, it's not complicated, and it's definitely not comprehensive tonight. But if you decide to accept the invitation into a life of costly discipleship, I believe and I know it'll change your life forever. There's this phrase that I really like, and I don't know who said it, so if you can't think of someone either, you can credit it to me, that's fine. Um, It goes, the way that you live your day is the way that you live your life. And so what that means is that today matters, because we're all becoming something, but the question then becomes, are you becoming like Jesus? The way you live your day is the way you live your life, and so today matters, friends, so, so deeply it matters. So three sections, three questions, let's go. This first section is verses 27 to 30. Let me read it again. Jesus and his disciples went onto the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say John the Baptist. Oh, I already said that. One of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Messiah, and Jesus warns them not to tell anybody. I love that Jesus first asks, who do people say I am? He like gets them to pull out of the conversation for a while. He asks, what he's actually asking is like, what, are the, what do people say? What does culture say? What does the world say? What does our context say? Who do they think that I am? And so maybe the question then becomes, well, who does Brisbane say that Jesus is? Who is your colleague saying that Jesus is? Who is your friend or your next door neighbor or your kid, who do they think Jesus is? Because our cultural narratives that we're surrounded by, they matter because people matter and the worldview that they're caught up in is the way that we get to bring the gospel. So these narratives matter. And so it's cool that that's where Jesus starts. Who does everybody else say that I am? But then he narrows it in and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who is known for his bold, weird declarations, he nails this one. There's a few times he doesn't get it so right, but this one he does, spot on, you are the Messiah. Messiah means the king, the anointed one, or the Christ. And what Matthew's account of this same story adds in is that Jesus says, this wasn't revealed to you by flesh or blood, but by my Father and by the Spirit. And so I think what we, what we learn from here is that any moments that we are able to take a glimpse of Jesus and see him rightly, any moments of that in our life, 
are only by the grace and the Spirit of God at work in us. He is good and he loves to do it. He will do it as often as we like, as often as we ask. But the key thing is that we can't come to an understanding of who Jesus is, of who God is, just by like our own effort or by thinking the right thing or knowing the right thing. It has to be revealed to us by the Lord. And then thirdly, it's so interesting that he says, don't tell anyone. The thing that Peter is spot on about, that Jesus is this long-awaited, centuries-awaited Messiah, this is the thing that they're to remain quiet about. And it's not because Jesus, uh, Peter is wrong. It's because Jesus wants to fill this title of Messiah with this beautiful, fresh meaning, fresh revelation for what it will mean for Jesus and for those who decide to follow him. And so my question then is, are you clear on who Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Can you answer that question? If you're someone who says that he is the Messiah, then does your life actually reflect him being your Lord and your Savior and your King? If you're not sure how to answer that question, totally fine. But what are you going to do to find out? Alpha is this phenomenal place to start where it's a safe space where you can literally ask any question about any topic to do with the Christian faith and people are so kind and so beautiful and we'll just sit with you until we figure it out. Because the thing is we don't promise answers, but we promise that we know the one who does have the answers. And so if you're in this space of questioning this, check out Alpha. It's starting I think on the 12th of October. Maybe wrong, maybe pull that out. Oh, great, I got thumbs up. That's awesome. Um, um, yeah, great. Try Alpha. It's, it's sick. It'll change your life, I promise. Um, yeah, and anyway, Alex said this really cool thing a couple weeks ago, and I don't know, um, yeah, in the context of it, but he said, the problem of being a living sacrifice is that we keep getting off the table. Yeah, you can laugh. Um, the problem of being a living sacrifice is that we keep getting off the table. And I think that means that we do a bit of a disservice when we tell people or we think that becoming a Christian, becoming a Christian or counting the cost is a one-time event rather than a lifestyle. A.W. Tozer would say it like this, everything in our Western culture is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ, a term which incidentally isn't actually found in the Bible, accepting Christ. We are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. But remember that discipleship means following after. Yeah, it's like it's a verb, it's an action, it's an in-process thing that is living and active and needs to be brought back onto the table because we wander off far too many times to count. And so if you are clear on who Jesus is, what would your life be marked by? I think it would be marked by a costly obedience, a single-minded obedience to have Jesus first in all things. I love Psalm 27 verse 4, which says something along the lines of, One thing I ask, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. Jesus becomes your one thing. If you are clear on who Jesus is, if you have seen him rightly, he is most beautiful and most worthy. 
And then as you get to know him more, as you get to know the Father more, you know his faithfulness. You trust in the other aspects of who he is, his love, his compassion, the way that he is slow to anger and quick to forgive. It's a costly obedience that says, oh, now I have something to share. And so you're honest about what you did on the weekend, how you spent your time on Sunday afternoon, what you're doing on Wednesday night when you go to midweek small group. Costly obedience means that when Holy Spirit prompts you to be kind to that coworker or to pay for someone's coffee, you step in in faith that he will have you the whole way through. Costly obedience is a willingness to say to God, God, keep me hungry because I know you keep me fed. So I think the question, are you clear on who Jesus is? If you are, your life will be marked by a costly obedience. The second thing from verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. This massive good declaration that he got right, and then straight back to a wrong one. He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. A few things again here. Suffering, rejection, and death. How good. This is what Jesus chooses to speak plainly about. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's like, shh, don't tell anyone. But then suffering, rejection, and death is like, yep, tell everybody. To Jesus, to the disciples, and to the crowd. The way of the kingdom is by death and resurrection. And it's so funny, here again, Peter's rebuke, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was on board for King Jesus, not so much suffering servant Jesus, and definitely not dead Jesus. And so he just slips back into thinking like everybody else. Like all the rest of the world, like all of the other cultural narratives who have decided what Jesus is apart from Scripture and apart from the revelation of God. He slips back into this, and it's so easy to do. It's so easy to do, to just think about one part of Jesus and think that that's it in its entirety. And then Jesus responds. He says that God's plan for the liberation, the restoration, the reconciliation of all of us to God and to one another will be accomplished by death and resurrection, not by military victory or earthly power or status or fame or personality. It will be much more humble, much more awful, much more costly. And so I'm asking us tonight, are we clear on the kind of discipleship that Jesus has called us into? If you're really honest, if I'm really honest, are we looking for the kind of Jesus who would give us wealth and health and prosperity and comfort and happiness? Because that's what the world would say happiness is. Is that, if we're honest, is that what we're looking for Jesus to fulfill in us? Because going by this passage, that's definitely not what Jesus is talking about. Leslie Newbegin says, the church calls men and women to repent of their false loyalty to other powers, to become believers in the one true sovereignty, and so to become corporately a sign, an instrument, a foretaste of that sovereignty of the one true and living God over all nature, all nations, and all human lives. Did you catch that? The one true living God. 
And so friends, we actually can't follow someone and be doing or following anyone else. Do you remember that game that you played as a kid, maybe in primary school called Follow the Leader? If you weren't following the leader, you weren't really playing the game. If there was more than one leader, you weren't really playing the game, right? And so in the same way, to follow Christ is to follow Christ. But with that is also to follow him into your sphere of influence, into your workplace, into your family, into your neighborhood, down your street. And to live as if he would live if he were you. Because the real and the paradox of following after the living Christ is also that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. In that, it becomes such an honor and a joy to follow in his footsteps. And as Bonhoeffer found himself, as the Apostle Paul found himself, as Jesus found himself, even unto death. And so if you're clear on what kind of discipleship Jesus has called you into, I think your life will be marked by a costly repentance. I think repentance becomes a daily companion. Sanctification is this funny Christian term, but it's kind of like a process where we become more like Christ, kind of like becoming. Um, And it's the Holy Spirit at work in us because one of the things that happens is that sin, the messy, selfish, broken parts of us that didn't used to bother us, sin that didn't used to bother us, suddenly starts to grieve us because we know it grieves our Father. We feel it more deeply. Things that were like, well, whatever, that's just what everyone does. It starts to actually grip you because we realize we're living out a cheap grace. We're not living a costly grace, we're living a cheap grace. Bonhoeffer would say that as the world has become Christianized, grace has become its common property. And so we don't see grace rightly. We treat it cheaply like it wasn't worth much. But the truth of the Bible, the truth of the story of Jesus is that we were dead in sin. But that in Jesus Living and dying and giving his life for us, we've been made alive in Christ. We've been seated and raised with him in heavenly places. That is phenomenal news that will change the world. But we've become so familiar with it that it doesn't even make a difference. But friends, let me tell you, repentance isn't just a little tweak here and there and like, you know, you're mostly good to go. It's actually this whole of life reorientation from one direction that you're facing one direction that you are walking because it's this living, active process, to actually, like, to use an Australian term, to chuck a yui and, like, literally turn and go the other way, to follow after the other way, to follow the way of Jesus. Because, yes, hear this really deeply. God loves you exactly as you are. That is so true. But the other thing is that he loves you too much to let you stay like that. He loves you exactly as you are tonight. He says, come as you are. My arms are open. But the proof of his love being costly is that he sent his son to die for you so that you wouldn't have to stay as you are, so that you would be able to be raised to new life and seated with him. And so repentance then becomes part of the good news of the gospel. Not that we have to do it, but that we get to do it. Because what other God, what other religion, what other worldview allows you to bring literally the grossest, most dirty parts of you and exchange that for someone's perfection. Literally no other God or worldview or religion lets us do that. And we treat it so cheaply. I treat it so cheaply. And so repentance becomes a mark of those of us who understand and who are clear on the kind of discipleship that Jesus has called us into.
And then finally, from verse 34, Jesus says he called the crowd along with his disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the sake of the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What's really powerful here is that Jesus changes the conversation. Before it was to his disciples. And what does he do now? He actually opens this up to everybody. He calls the crowd. And again, if you are here and you haven't made up your mind about who Jesus is, about what you think of the Christian life, if you have never even heard of Jesus until tonight, you are welcome here. You are part of this invitation. You are part of the crowd. We're all part of this crowd. So don't be like, oh, this isn't for me. This is for somebody else. This is for all of us. Jesus calls the crowd along with his disciples. And um, in a story in Luke about um, building a life of good foundations, Jesus says, um, whoever comes to me, whoever hears me, and whoever puts what I'm saying into practice, that will be my disciple. The message of the gospel, this good news about Jesus, is literally for everybody. So hear this for you. Hear this for you. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And this, this is what discipleship looks like. This is the cost of discipleship. Not only is God's plan for liberation accomplished by the way of death for Jesus, so too must anyone wanting to be his disciple take up this way of death as well. You see, in the ancient Near East culture, to take up a cross and to carry it on your back was not just to like take up a burden in life, like, you know, you know uh, my finger is sore because I cut it at work. Like, it's not that sense. It's literally to pick up this thing that you are actually going to be killed by and to carry it to the place of your execution. We've lost that because it's, yeah, it doesn't mean much to us now. But to take up a cross was not just to carry a burden, but to engage in the very way of your death. And obedience to Christ, it costs you that. It costs you absolutely everything. But I would suggest that disobedience actually costs you more. Obedience to Christ costs you everything, but disobedience will cost you more. To take up your cross is to lay down your life for the rest of your life. Remember, we keep getting off the table, and so we need to keep putting ourselves back on by His Spirit and with His grace. It's not to earn our salvation, but to rest in it and to come back to his cross. Which means we get to rejoice. Because the last part of this says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the sake of the gospel will save it. And the comfort and the hope of this, friends, is that if we are experiencing things about our lives that don't make sense, you are in good company. Because that is the whole nature of the kingdom of God. Very little about the kingdom of God makes sense. Very little about the way of Jesus or the cost of discipleship makes sense. You are in good company because his kingdom is upside down and it is the best news ever. And so what I'm asking is, are you clear on what your response is? Are you clear on what your response is to who Jesus is? To the, the type of discipleship that he's called you into? 
Are you clear on what your response is? Because to tell you the truth, you're actually already living it. You're actually already living whatever your response is currently. And so then the question becomes, are you okay with that? Because as we've read, as we've studied, as we've explored, the way to gain your life is to give it to Him. To trust that He actually has better intentions and better plans for you than you could ever dream or imagine. The way to find true life is to lay ours down. And friends, I get that no one would ever think that the good life should or could work this way. It doesn't make sense. But we don't actually get the good life by pursuing the good life. We get the good life by pursuing Jesus. Because for the Christian in this room, this life is actually as bad as it gets. This is as bad as it gets. The pain and the suffering and the hardship and the longings that are unfulfilled, this is as hard as it gets because we get to spend eternity with Jesus. Who when we look at Him, when we see Him, everything else will pale in comparison. But at the same time, for those of us who choose not to recognize Him as Lord and Savior, remember that anyone is invited but we make a choice. Anyone who chooses not to recognize Him as Lord and Savior, this life becomes as good as it gets because eternity is then spent apart from Him. And I hope that stirs up in you an urgency to share this. Eternity is at stake. And so if you are clear on what your response is tonight, to who Jesus is, to the kind of discipleship that he has called you into. And if you're okay with what your response is, I think your life will be marked by a costly love. You will live a life that costs you everything, but that will never be wasted or in vain. You'll live out an extravagant love that spills out from the love you've received from God and it will pour out onto others in a way that costs you. Your life will literally rub up against people who you don't really like and that becomes the joy of discipleship because by that, the world will know that you're his disciple. Second, I think we'll live out an extravagant forgiveness. One that recognizes Romans 5, 8 that says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't when we'd cleaned ourselves up, when we'd pulled our bootstraps tighter. It was at our worst, at our most broken, at our most disgusting. That that's when Christ died for you and for me. And so we will be people who go out of our way to extend grace and forgiveness and to pursue reconciliation because we've received it first. We'll realize that we have been forgiven so much And so we'll love so much in return. And finally, I think what it means to live a costly love is that we will live out an extravagant generosity with this good news of Jesus that we have been trusted with. We will have this urgency and this compulsion towards evangelism in a way that suits your personality and your gifts and your context. He uses you as you are to share the news. We don't have to do it the same way as anybody else. 
but we'll have this urgency and compulsion to find ways to intersect our lives with those who don't yet know Jesus, who haven't heard about Him, who haven't received an invitation or who haven't responded yet. So um, we'll leave it there for tonight. But again, let me just repeat these one more time. If you haven't taken these as notes yet, please do. Are you clear on who Jesus is? If you are, your life will be marked by a costly obedience. Are you clear on what kind of discipleship Jesus has called you into? If you are, your life will be marked by costly repentance. And are you clear on what your response is and are you okay with that? If you are, if you choose Jesus, I think your life will be marked by a costly love. And though it costs us so much, the good news is that whoever loses their life in this life for Jesus and for the sake of the gospel will not ever fail to find it in this life or in eternity to come. And um, if anything, Holy Spirit has stirred in you throughout worship or throughout what I've been saying, um, if anything's gripping you, Kath and I are gonna be over to your left and we'd love to pray for you, but you're also welcome to just turn to the person you came with and ask them for prayer too. Um, But we'd love to do that. I wanna pray for you now and then um, James and the team are gonna lead us in response through worship. Will you stand with me? Is that all right? And if there is something that has been stirred in you, if you need Holy Spirit to come and minister to you, like you're very welcome to just put your hands out, like you're ready to receive whatever it is that you need. And you can just ask Him. I'll give you a few moments in in a second to just be silent with Him. He's a good Father. And He loves His kids and He loves when His kids speak with Him. So you are free to just ask Him for whatever it is that you need. But Jesus, I I just pray that for every single one of us who has found ourselves in this space tonight, that we would just have this beautiful revelation of Jesus. Just help us see him rightly. High and lifted up the train of your robe, Father, filling the temple. All of the angels and the elders casting their crowns at your feet and singing, worthy, worthy, worthy. Father, that the things that we're wrestling through, the things that are so tightly clenched in our hands about our life, about this life that we are unwilling to let go of, that when we take a real good look at you and we see you rightly, it would just be our joy to let them go. For those of us, God, who have longings or disappointments or things that in this life, because of our costly discipleship, we will never have fulfilled, I pray that you would satisfy us. Satisfy us every morning with your unfailing love. And God, for those of us who are yet to give our lives to allegiance to Jesus, release us from fear and help us say yes.
not just today, not just tomorrow, but every day for the rest of our lives. Help us keep getting back on the table. Help us keep encouraging one another to be a community of faith who are bringing each other into maturity and into your likeness, Jesus. And as we finish another Becoming Sunday, help us not grow cold or apathetic or familiar with the things of the kingdom, but keep us sharp, keep us hungry and keep us fed. God, that your kingdom would come and your will be done here in Brisbane, here on earth as it is in heaven. We wanna see more people become more like Jesus so that more people would be able to see you rightly and tell about you rightly. Come change us and come change this city, God, for your glory and for your name.